What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first son and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. The word of the Lord. Good morning. We're taking this fall to go through the parables of Jesus, which uh, the parables are the primary way in which Jesus uh, sought to instruct, to teach, to reveal the kingdom that was at hand, which is a pretty startling idea if you think about it. Um, Rather than handing out simply an explanation or an outline of what was occurring or um, some code, he told stories. He, he taught through metaphor, which means that he told a story in which an individual, when hearing the story, locates him or herself in the story somehow. And they're powerful ways of communicating. Some people would argue that metaphor is the most powerful way of communicating because it calls upon the hearer to locate themselves in the context of the story, and it's largely a timeless form of communication. Right? Is it where if you take um, very particular soundings or bearings in the context in which you're teaching, uh, eventually those will be relative. They won't make sense or apply necessarily. But a story that's very simply stated is going to be something that has application for a very long period of time. And in the parable this morning, Jesus takes issue with something that is timeless, at least until he comes back, and that's self-righteousness. Self-justification, the notion that we establish who we are, and we may need a little help from God, but we don't need a lot of help from God. I went to Westminster Seminary, which Westminster is in Philadelphia, and uh, thinks of itself as a pretty, pretty elite theological institution. It's interesting when you arrive... Um, you, you meet some people who are very serious about knowing a lot about theology. But you also have this group of individuals who, who believe that they've been called by God to serve the church and so are busy asking themselves, well, how am I set apart to serve the church? And how am I going to go about that? And what am I going to contribute? And you arrive at Western, and most people come in thinking that they, they know their theology or have their, their ducks in a row. But you start talking to people, and you meet some people who are exceptionally more talented. You realize that they are a lot smarter than you are and have a lot better command of theology than you ever will and seem to have grown up in households that spoke Greek and Hebrew. And you, uh, so how do you feel in the midst of that? Well, you feel, my goodness, what am I doing here? And what do I then have to offer to the church? And you would see different people 
um, then try to create, well, if I can't be the theologian, I'll, I'll be the practical theologian. I will, I will master counseling, or I will master uh, preaching, or I will master uh, worship and liturgy. And this is what I will bring to the church. Or if somebody wasn't good at either of the, any of the above, they would say, well, you know what? I, what I'm going to bring to the church is I'm going to be pious. Right? These people have lots of knowledge. These people have lots of practical skills. But as for me, I'm going to bring to the table real holiness. Right? The kind of holiness that I will be devout, I will meet with God every day, and I will be set apart, and that will be what I bring to the church. And though we may not have said this out loud, there was a tremendous amount of energy placed on what we would give to the church and how we would contribute and make the church better. And there was a lot more emphasis on those things than actually bringing Jesus to the church. I understand what they meant. You know, I was caught up in this. I understand what they meant, but the, the looking back, the... Um, the slogan of the seminary at the time, which I think has changed, was, was pretty audacious. It was, master one word. And what they meant was, come and, and learn the Bible, and that's what we're going to focus on, right? That's our primary agenda. But think about it for a minute, master one word. Who masters the Bible? Right? What, what kind of ethos had to exist that we would go in, and then we think we're coming out, oh, now we're masters of Scripture. We'll head out into the church and make a huge difference. Again, but it was about what we had and what we brought to the table and what we were able to accomplish. It was all about our righteousness. And when we talk about in any way, shape, or form why we're important, why we're significant, when it's not attached to Jesus directly, that's self-justification. Saying, this is why I matter. This is why God owes me something. And these are the things that are on at the forefront of the engagement between Jesus and the religious leaders. Matthew, more than any other gospel, paints for us a picture of the, the tension that existed between the religious leaders and Jesus. Jesus is constantly railing against their sin, and they are portrayed as obtuse and lacking understanding in terms of what is going on. And this is what our parable today speaks into. Let's begin then by considering the two sons. Jesus says, there's a father, he's got a vineyard, and he says to the two sons, I need you to go out and labor today. And the first son says, nope, not going to happen, Dad. But then he goes anyway, and he does the work in the vineyard. The second son says, sure, Dad, I'll go out into the vineyard. I'll do the work today. And then he never makes it into the vineyard to actually do the work. And the question is posed to the religious leaders, who then did the will of the Father? And the religious leaders correctly answer, the first son who said no, but actually did the work. Which means at least that faith is demonstrated more clearly in action than in speech. Right? Our hearts are what matter, and there's no clearer way to see what's going on in your heart than to look at what you actually do, rather than what you think or what you say. Your actions reveal, really, your true commitments rather than what we say. And we know this. We can think of countless examples in all the experiences that you've had perhaps just in the last week, of ways in which you said, yes, I will go, Father, into the vineyard to labor, and you never showed up there. Right? Some of you said, I'm going to love my wife better this week, and you didn't have time for her. And some of you said, I'm going to respect my husband this week, 
and you talked badly about him when he wasn't there. So he said, I'm really going to intentionally invest in my kids this week. And you handed them an iPad. Some of you said, I am going to get serious about repenting of this sin. And then the next stressful moment they came up, you found yourself right back there. And some of you said, I am going to really invest in pursuing God and spending quality time with Him, and we're going to connect right after the football game today. Right? But nobody, none of us is a stranger of this notion of saying something, committing to something that would facilitate our growth in Christ and not following through with it, finding ourselves distracted, not ever making it to the vineyard. This is one of the problems of the fall, after the fall, and the brokenness of our humanity. We all uh, know that we are saying certain things, but not doing certain things. So, Jesus then proceeds to drive the point home in a particular direction. We're not simply saying that, hey, religious leaders, you talk about righteousness, but you don't actually do it. Although that's certainly on the table. From there, Jesus proceeds to go on and press the issue further. And what does he say? He says, you know, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom before you. They're ahead of you in understanding what's happening. They're ahead of you in making the right decisions. They're closer to God and his work on this earth than you are. And boys and girls, remember what a prostitute is someone who sells kisses. Kisses are never to be sold. They're only to be given as God instructs. So a tax collector and a prostitute are essentially the lowest rung ethically and righteously in this time period. Right? You've sold out your own body or you've sold out your own country because if you're a tax collector, you are enforcing the ridiculous high taxes from Rome on Israel. You are aiding the oppressor. And so there's nothing, there's, there's really not a rung below tax collector and prostitute. And Jesus says, you know, the tax collector and the prostitute are ahead of you in terms of entering the kingdom of God. It's so offensive. It's as if, I mean, imagine the person in your life who you think is the most despicable. Maybe it's someone in your family. Maybe it's someone in your community. Maybe it's someone you've just read about in the world, but they have no bearings. You think they're unrighteous. You think they're, most of the time is spent hurting other people. And imagine Jesus saying to you, yeah, that person is ahead of you in terms of the kingdom of God. Well, that would require something of them granted, but you have to feel what's going on for the religious leaders here. Right? These are the, the, the people, particularly the men who have been raised in the tradition, They know Torah. They're intimate with the Word. They've sought to be faithful. They've sought to obey. And here Jesus has said, you're not going into the kingdom of God. It's a a crazy statement. It's a statement that should cut us to the quick. right? At, At least for the reason, because so often when you evaluate your own righteousness and think of your proximity to the kingdom, you use the same categories as the religious leaders. How intimate am I with the Word? Am I, am I learning this? Am I, am I being obedient? Are we being careful that we don't walk in their footsteps and that we understand obedience as Jesus is portraying it and not as the religious leaders would have walked in it? 
we're not, then we may not be anywhere near as close to the kingdom as we might hope, as we might desire. So what's the difference between the religious leaders and the tax collectors and the prostitutes? Why is one group making it into the kingdom and one group is not making it into the kingdom? What's the line between the two? Well, Jesus says the line between the two is because the tax collectors and the prostitutes have believed John the Baptist's message. He's now dead. Right? This is, we're going back sometime in the story of the gospel. They believed him and you didn't. Well, that's a funny line to draw. John the Baptist has just come up in conversation prior to the parable that we're reading. But how is believing John the Baptist going to draw the line between the wrong response of the religious leaders and the right response of the tax collectors and the, uh, the prostitutes? Okay. Well, what did John the Baptist say? Right. Do, you, do you remember? It's something we, we better know. If, if, this, if believing what John the Baptist said is the delineating point between the religious leaders and the tax collectors and the prostitutes, we better be familiar with what John the Baptist said. And John the Baptist is recorded as having a very short message, which is essentially repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. Now why would the tax collectors and prostitutes believe that message and why would the religious leaders fail to believe that message? Well, we might say a number of different things in observation of the story. The religious leaders, we know, loved, uh, they actually loved their many clothes. They would wear fancy robes with uh, fancy um, tassels that designated their authority and their religious prowess. And um, these things they loved. And do you remember how John the Baptist came into, onto the scene? He, he was wearing camel's hair, which was a, a kind of a peasant uniform, and he was eating locusts and honey. In other words, he, he has existed in poverty, and this is how he comes on the scene. And the religious leaders who love their money, as the Gospels tells us, and they love their dress, hear from a man who obviously doesn't care for any of that, you should repent. Well, that might have been one of the reasons that it was hard to hear John the Baptist. Another reason for the religious leaders certainly was that they liked their power. Right? They liked having authority and commanding the people. John the Baptist comes on the scene from the wilderness. He doesn't even live in the circles of power. He's completely on the fringes of power and comes in speaking from the outside and the religious leaders say, who is this guy? He's not been to our schools. He doesn't know what we know. He kind of acts like a prophet, but where does he get his authority? That was the question immediately preceding the parable. The religious leaders value power and authority in a different way. John the Baptist urges repentance, but the religious leaders presumably had nothing to repent of. They don't understand his message when it comes on the scene. We're doing quite well. We're very obedient. Yes, we understand that people in the country need to repent. That's not us. And not needing to repent, then they didn't really need kingdom because everything was under their control. You notice those three basic features. The religious leaders loved their wealth. John represents poverty. The religious leaders loved control. John represents a lack of control. And the religious leaders didn't think they had anything to repent of when John is advocating repentance for everyone. These are the things that are preventing the religious leaders from believing John the Baptist's message 
and therefore from actually experiencing the kingdom. They are the same things that inhibit us from experiencing the kingdom. When we see the kingdom at work and we hear even the message of John the Baptist, which will be the message through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the kingdom is still at hand and the call is still to repent. When you say, yes, but the pictures of, of poverty and being outside circles of power and recognizing my own sinfulness and my need, those are things that I don't really want to do. And so I take a step back and I keep that call of the kingdom and repentance at arm's length, just like the religious leaders. Molly and I were having a conversation yesterday. Molly is my 12-year-old, and I asked her if I could share a little bit of this story. She had a piano recital yesterday morning, and it, it didn't go very well. And a piano concert, sorry. Competition, Competition that's what I mean. Piano, com- I'm getting corrected, but I can't hear the correction. Uh, piano competition yesterday, and she, she didn't play as well as she would have liked, and so she was very sad. And there were tears after the, the piano competition we started to talk, and she said, well, the, it's the one thing with piano, you know, and, and Molly is good at, at most things, um, but she said, you know, I, I do, some things I'm not as good, maybe I'm not a, a very good athlete, and maybe in some areas I, I struggle, but piano, piano was the one place where I've never gotten a a low mark. I've never done less than excellent in piano. And you could hear that there was, um, this was a piece of her, her forming identity. And, uh, and I said essentially, well, I'm so, I'm, in one sense, you know, I'm, I'm glad you worked hard and I'm sorry that you're disappointed, but I'm really glad you failed. And I told her that I pray regularly for all of my children that they would fail at something and would know, would know failure. And the reason that um, I pray this for them and explain to her was that if you are good at most things, you, you never really get to understand or be intimate with, with need. And if you're not intimate with need and an inability to meet the needs that you have in and of yourself, then you tend to think that you can handle life and that you're competent, and your identity will be placed in the strengths as they are demonstrated in those various aspects of life. And so whether you think of a seminarian who says, I am strong and my significance exists in my ability to counsel others, or my ability to master a certain aspect of theology, or it's a young child growing up and says, my identity is really in my ability to play the piano or my ability to dance. Anytime we start locating our identity somewhere other than Jesus Christ, we are playing the religious leader. We have simply substituted their framework of righteousness for something that we believe will give us meaning and identity and rescue us in this life. I had one friend in seminary. His name was Wibb, and Wibb was a funny character. Well, I had more than one friend in seminary, but one friend in particular, his name was Wibb, and he was, um, he's hard to describe, he was a... uh, uh, he would he would proudly wear the wear the badge redneck, and it was um, and that's almost an understatement. He came from the uh, the hills of Tennessee, and it showed up at seminary. And what made Wib unique was he couldn't care less about everything. All the other seminarians were devouring each other over. And all the other seminarians are. I'm going to be better at you than this, 
so that I'm significant and have identity. Wib didn't care because Wib came from a, uh, a life that had been uh, messed up in a number of ways. He had tried all kinds of endeavors. He had lived as a pagan, spent his years college and post-college arguing Christians out of their faith. And um, on a lark, to make fun of a family, went to a Billy Graham crusade where he was converted. Says, I found myself down on the floor, and I still to this day cannot tell you how or why I ended up down on the floor. And a couple months later, he decided to go to seminary. And so he was there, and he's like, I'm just trying to figure out who God is and what the Bible is. And I, you, <laughs> I think Wade would say something like, you all make me not want to be a Christian going to school with you, but I'm still pursuing my faith despite y'all, right? And, but what, what was Wib's advantage? Right? Not that you wish this necessarily upon someone, but Wib had been through life in a way where he, he had learned a hard way not to be able to rely on any strengths intrinsic of himself. He didn't have an image he was trying to maintain. He wasn't reliant upon a system of self-righteousness. He knew he was broken and messed up. And he had come to believe that there was hope in Jesus Christ. And so he believed that he really needed Jesus. And he was at seminary to find Jesus. And not to find a career or power or authority. And that made him delightfully refreshing, but it also made him understand a great deal more about the gospel than the rest of us who knew a lot more about theology, but we didn't know as much about the gospel as he did. Because he knew that he was wholly reliant and desperately needed Jesus to meet him. That way he understood the kingdom and wasn't holding it as arm's length like the religious leaders were. And that's the notion. You see, that's the notion of why the tax collectors and the prostitutes, Jesus comes on the scene and John the Baptist precedes him and says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the tax collectors and the prostitutes say, okay. Yeah, because what I'm doing right now isn't working. My life is pretty broken. And if the kingdom of God is going to be unveiled... I recognize, and if my life's going to be changed, I need something from the outside upon which I'm ready to rely and not to take confidence on myself. As where the religious leaders say, repent. Of what? I'm waiting faithfully. I don't need anything big from God. I need God to come and fix everything else around me that's broken. And so they neither can receive what God is offering, nor can they be loved by God because they are so confident in and of themselves. They can't fall down at the cross, and so they can't understand the gospel. This is exactly what's happening with Nicodemus. If we were to turn to, to John, and Nicodemus comes in the night because he's too embarrassed and it's too dangerous. The religious leaders wouldn't understand, but Nicodemus says, listen, we can't figure you out. You're doing things that only a person who is blessed by God could be doing. And so... And Jesus says, you're a teacher of Israel and can't, you can't understand what's going on? You have to be born again. And Nicodemus has no idea what that means. If Jesus said to a tax collector and prostitute, say, you have to be born again, they'd say, yeah, we do. We desperately need to be born again. Our life hasn't gone anywhere. And if God's going to do anything, then goodness, let him show up and let me be born again. That's the difference between the self-righteous and those who rely upon Christ's righteousness and being born again. One of the saddest parts, though, to realize in all of this is that um, for the religious leaders, they're deprived of the joy of the kingdom, right? Those who have spent their whole life waiting for the kingdom, and as the kingdom is unveiled, there's beauty and there's joy, but the religious leaders don't have access to it. 
Why? What is the next thing that Jesus says to the religious, religious leaders? It's not simply that they haven't believed John the Baptist. Right? Again, for a third time, Jesus takes it a step forward. He says, even beyond that, you have seen the tax collectors and the prostitutes repenting. You have seen them turning to engage the kingdom of God. And what has been your response? You still don't believe. When the, one of the most miraculous things that could possibly happen is happening, you still don't believe. The joy of their repentance, the joy of them coming and turning around, which is the thing you always wanted from the beginning, was for all of Israel to be faithful, not just you, is happening, and you can't celebrate it because you feel like somebody's gotten in line in front of you. And we deprive ourselves of the joy of the kingdom when we exist as self-righteous and self-justifying individuals. Are you a religious leader? I am, to be sure. All the time. How do you know if you're a religious leader? Right? You know you're a religious leader when? <laughs> right? Anytime you think God owes you, you are a religious leader. You are a religious leader anytime you are frustrated by the repentance or growth of another. You ever feel that? Right? You think you're doing pretty well. Maybe you're even investing in somebody, and all of a sudden they say something you've never thought of. And all of a sudden you're frustrated. You're angry even. Why are they getting that insight and you don't have that insight? You're a religious leader. If joy isn't the response to what you're seeing God do. You're a religious leader anytime you care more about your reputation than experiencing joy in the kingdom. Right? For all the reasons that the religious leaders cannot come to John the Baptist, nor can they repent and believe when they see the tax collectors and prostitutes repenting, right? they believe that everything is pinned on their, what they have done is righteous. And they can't come to the place to sacrifice that, to give it up and to say, oh, maybe we were wrong. Maybe our perceived righteousness wasn't righteousness at all, and we need something different from God. It's the beauty you see in, in, when Nicodemus meets Jesus, but it's rare. It's not what you see with the rest of the religious leaders. They're unable to give it up. They're unable to separate from the image that they've created for their own righteousness. And lastly, we're religious leaders when we fail to pray. If we're saying that one of the main differences between the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the religious leaders is the ability to actually recognize need and receive love from God. And the tax collectors and the prostitutes can do it because they recognize that they're in desperate need. And they desperately desire to be loved, but the religious leaders can't because they think that they are strong and stable and don't need the same love and the same rescuing from God. If you believe that, you have little reason to talk to God. Why, why would you bother? You've got things under control and you're waiting for him to fix other things. It's when your prayers start to look like, my goodness, Lord Jesus, I grossly underestimate my self-righteousness. I repent of the things in my life that I think are good. I repent of patting myself on the back because I taught Sunday school or because I helped someone in the church or because I confronted someone and I did what I believe you wanted me to do and I think highly of myself. I repent of that 
Because I know my righteousness, only God makes good. That only comes from you. And I need to rely upon your love and not the love that I extend to myself and my own righteousness. And that's where I'm healed. So those things characterize us as a religious leader, a religious leader rather than one who recognizes need and grace in Jesus Christ. God is not surprised when the first son says no and goes, and he's not surprised when the second son says yes and doesn't go. God is not surprised by your sin, and he's not surprised by your need. Would you please stop pretending to be? Let's pray. Jesus, we repent uh, before you. Seeking your forgiveness, for we have sought so often to establish our importance and our identity and our, our righteousness in the things that we do, in the things that we say or we know, rather than in Jesus. And so we fall this morning at the cross, and we thank you that you have looked down upon us, rebellious and evil and wicked, and in grace you have loved us and you have gathered us to yourself. And if you have enabled us to be born again, let us not return to that old age or to the old self that finds its life in the broken paradigms of this world, but instead finds its life in you. Lord, help us to drink deeply of what you offer and realize that it is the only place from which life comes. We ask for your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> offer up your hearts and